just to let you know, uh, we do have more paper. Uh, if you do have a question you want to put, put together, just fold it over. We'll keep it anonymous and uh, we'll just work through the system here. So uh, without anything, any further delay, we can uh, turn it over to Brother Ron. And as a reminder to some, or as something new to others, uh, let me share with you how I view a gathering like this. Okay. I'm not a marriage counselor. I'm not a therapist of any kind. I'm not a doctor. Uh, I am an older brother. So we talk about the age being ambiguous. It reaches way up, way up there, right? Um, with some measure of spiritual understanding and experience. I'm not an expert in anything. I don't come to this gathering packed with information I read in books or online. I'm not an advocate of any particular kind of school of opinion regarding human life or married life. I'm simply a brother here. So without splitting hairs, even if the term question and answer is used, my understanding of answer is response and fellowship. Because answer implies that you really know the answer. And when we touch the realities, the complexities, the needs, the depths, the heartaches, the longings, the perplexities of human life, there are no pat answers. Even God himself, who has the answers, tends not to answer questions, but to impart himself into the situation. So what I say in response should be regarded as fellowship. I didn't get this on the top of Mount Sinai. It's not inscribed in stone. It's not anything authoritative from man. It's simply fellowship that you should receive as such. Now, <clears throat> there are actually five matters on this sheet. The more questions you have, the better. Because um, the meeting should come out from within you. It should be an attempt to address what really matters to you. Mm. And while you may... And these, the, the, the meeting goes until about 9.30, I think. Not that you're all imprisoned here until then. If child care or other matters beckon you, then don't hesitate to go. So maybe we could take written questions anytime, pass them up until around 9.15 or so. I do have the feeling to just share a couple things somewhat anecdotally maybe to set the tone. And first I want to tell you a real story about a conversation. That's actually, it was a one-sided conversation, and you'll know why in a moment, between one of my mothers, two mothers in the Lord's recovery, and myself. The two mothers were Sister Lee and a sister you may have never heard of, 
named Clara Albrecht. Mm. Now she was an exceedingly precious sister, profoundly deep in the Lord, severely limited by a heart condition, had to carry the nitroglycerin with her all the time. And one day I met her outside of the meeting hall, now the training center in Anaheim. And our contact was simple. I would meet her, I would greet her, I would be silent, and she would talk to me. It might take three or four minutes, and then my life was changed. Mm. This didn't happen a lot, but it did happen one particular time. She and her husband had been married for a very long time. And the background of what she told me indicates there had been a very serious event in their married life. An event which is more likely to destroy a marriage than not. So she told me this story. She said, Carl, that was her husband, and I had a conversation. And she, Clara, said to Carl, Carl, things are so sweet between us, aren't they, Carl? And he said, yes, Clara, they're so sweet. Hmm. Then Clara continued, Carl, do you know why they're so sweet? And um, I insert here, the more experience brothers have, the more they realize they shouldn't try to answer such questions from their wives. (laughs) The wife already knows the answer. But Carl really didn't know. He said, no, dear. Why are things so sweet? And then she said, Carl, things are so sweet because we have forgiven each other. That was it. I knew that as a spiritual mother, she knew me better than I knew myself. I knew she prayed in all genuineness. This wasn't a teaching. There wasn't a correction. It was a testimony Mm. from two older people who obviously had to forgive each other. She didn't say, it's so sweet because you have forgiven me, or it is so sweet because I have forgiven you. But we have forgiven each other. I've been married for 47 and a half years. I've gone through the three stages of married life. So that is a prompt, but we'll see if there's interest in that later. We'll see, or I'll just come to it. I don't want to tease you. (laughs) 
And recently my wife and I had a brief ex exchange. The essence of it was how sweet it is, how pleasant it is, more than ever. Mm. And one basic factor is we have forgiven each other. Wow. Each other. If the relationship is such that one party is in need of forgiveness but not the other. And so the party, the righteous party, may or may not forgive. There's little hope for a deep development of love and sweetness. Because one is above the other, one is superior to the other, one is more righteous than the other, one is better than the other. But when there's forgiveness of each other, both are broken under their failures. So neither is above the other. Neither can condemn the other. And both can tap into the Lord's word. We can apply it to married life. Toward the end of Luke 7 to the woman of every repute who came in uninvited to the Pharisee's house and you know the story. And then the Lord concluded, he who is forgiven much loves much. In a very real sense, whether it's loving the Lord, loving our brothers and sisters, or especially loving our spouse, the more we are forgiven, the more we love. We just love. Forgiveness produces love. I do know of one situation. It's a middle-aged couple, so it's not an indirect reference to anyone in this part of the earth, okay? So no subjectivity, please. The husband had a certain kind of shortcoming and failure that he's aware of and that his wife is aware of. And the wife has a kind of weakness that the husband is aware of and that she is not aware of. So one day, the husband, not in an argument, but in really pleasant conversation, said, have you ever needed to be forgiven for anything major? And she said, no. I've never needed forgiveness. Then he said to her, perhaps that's why you can't forgive. Hmm. And he learned, this is from a mother's observation, that forgiveness doesn't come easy. So I begin here because this is part of the story 
of my whole life, human life, Christian life, church life, married life, the grace of forgiveness, the love that issues from forgiveness, the humility that follows from needing to forgive and from forgiving. And then recently I had a conversation Actually, the, a co-worker brother was sharing with me about a particular matter. He said, if both fail, there will be a, a new beginning. Mm-hmm. A new beginning because both are humbled under the failure. And then the love comes forth. Now from another angle, and I think this will be enough of an opening word, lest I give a, utic- give a message that has a Eutychian response and someone from weariness falls out of their chair at 2 a.m., okay? And that is from a, a very non-romantic And I am for romantic, by the way, but there are some non-romantic passages concerning married life. And it's one thing when I talk to fourth-term brothers about this at their request, but they basically have no idea what they're heading for. Uh, You brothers, and especially your wives, know. So Peter first speaks to the wife. Don't try to gain your husband by persuasion. Be quiet uh, and let your manner of life gain him. Maybe Peter was aware men are too proud and stubborn to be convinced by their wife to have any radical change. And so it's not wise to try to change them. But I'm concerned or interested more in Peter's word to the husband's He says, live with them according to knowledge. He doesn't say love, he says knowledge. Giving honor to them as the weaker vessel, as heirs together of the grace of life. Okay? Weaker. I don't know what your view is. Maybe your view is strong and weak. God's view, and I agree with God, I am weak, my wife is er. Weak and weak-er. This is a very, very different way of looking at it. Right. If it's strong and weak, the, dynamic, the dynamics of that are not going to be healthy for the long run but weak and weaker. And Peter says, live with them according to knowledge. And I used to give this talk, I'm not going to give it tonight, a decade ago, to young single brothers. I said, I would tell them, I can save you 10 years of difficulty in your married life. 20 I cannot do. 10 I can do. Why do I say this? Okay. I will now give you a list 
of a number of really dumb things husbands do. Don't do them. And by not doing them, you will save yourself 10 years. Why? Why? Because by doing these things, you not only offend your wife, you hurt your wife. And, okay, sisters, you're here, so a little kind of diagnosis. The, the male self is like the inflated ego. The female self is deep and intricate and subtle. And strangely, being wounded empowers you. It empowers you. It's a weapon that's unanswerable, especially if you can, and you do, selectively remember these things. They're all remembered. Then a dispute comes up. The husband is determined to prevail because he's a man, and no man wants to be defeated by a female. And then the wife comes up. This, 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 this. And then the topper is this. You always do that. Mm. By the way, one of the dumb things, I mentioned one of the dumb things. When a wife says you always do that or you never do that, that is an emotional statement. It is not meant to be a factual statement. So don't say something clever like this, like Ron Kangas did in the olden days. Is it viable for you to say, I never did that? I distinctly remember on October 17th, 14 years ago, I did the very thing that you said I never do. Hence, you lose the case, okay? I have stoked the fire. I have poured gasoline on the flame. Oh, my. So, the only way This matter can be resolved because when, when the missile silos are open of this kind and you actually did the things and then they're strung together by selective memory. Even the most clever of you will have no defense. Right. The wounded party, okay, the offended party must be willing to forgive. The wounded party must be willing to be healed. And don't think this just comes spontaneously. I, oh, I want to be healed. Of course I want to be healed. My enjoyment of the Lord is being killed. My capacity to be built up with others is compromised. Well, to be healed is to lay down your weapon. It's to never to bring up the matter again. Mm. It's to have your being washed from this, to have oil and wine poured into you so that it's gone. 
and that you can finally let your husband go. But in the early years, I learned this the hard way. I made a certain kind of mistake. It wasn't a moral mistake. It was but it's an unwise thing. Probably took seven years before that stopped coming up. So Peter tells the husband, you need to live with them according to knowledge. You have to understand the nature of the marriage relationship. And you have to understand the character of the female vessel. And then you must learn to do in the Lord the opposite of what you're inclined to do. And that is, when she's really out of it, and body chemistry is kicking in, and there's all kinds of behavior that you find really difficult. When she is feeling the worst about herself, when apparently she's the least lovable, that is when you honor her. The weaker vessel. You honor her. You honor her. Not only love her, you honor her. And you understand the nature of the marriage relationship. So I just mentioned uh, these two things because these matters are part of my being in relation to married life. By the way, since I alluded to it and I had no intention of, te- of teasing you, in one wedding message, maybe around 1996, I spoke from John 2 on the three stages of marriage. And I learned from my wife, by the way, where she learned it, I don't know, and I think I will not inquire further, because what she shared with me rang true. The wives know the status of things. The husbands generally don't have a clear idea. How they know, I don't know. But they just know where the relationship is. And if you have the courage, you can ask her. Uh, When I ask my wife things like this, I get very truthful answers. Once I asked her a question, sincerely, because I wanted to learn how to live Christ at home, to be a God-man at home. So I said, Susan, on a scale of 1 to 10, how much would you say I live Christ? So I was estimating, you will probably say 4 or 5. But she said 4 this way. Minus four. So not even on the scale. So I decided after that, I should either learn to live Christ at home or I should stop asking my wife questions like that. (laughs) Okay, the three stages of marriage, and I think there's something to this. And don't rob newlyweds of the first stage. Some unhappy middle-aged sisters 
have injected cynicism into newly married brides. It's really sad. So it's the wedding feast and the wine is served. And the practice is to serve the best wine. (coughs) Then the wine runs out. So the verdict is no wine. And then you know the story. The Lord has the servants fill the stone water pots with water. And he changes the water into wine. So the wine signifies life with his enjoyment. So it's normal, it's human, it's necessary to enjoy the good wine in the beginning. Don't put into others, oh, wait, do you see what happens? This happened, this and that, this and that. It won't last. Don't do that. Don't tell them about the cross, the breaking, the dealing, the discipline of the Holy Spirit, all of this. Don't do that. Encourage them to be happy together, to enjoy each other, to help each other be satisfied in every way. You may say that's natural, that's human, that's right. Marriage is a relationship in the old creation. But the wine always runs out. Okay. So there's no so the first stage and who knows how long it lasts. For some it doesn't survive the honeymoon, others it lasts for a few years. Then there's no wine. So here you are married with no wine. There's the duty, there's the obligation, there's the responsibility, there's the commitment, there's the vow. You held holding each other's hands and looking into each other's eyes and you uttered these precious things and you meant them with your whole heart. But now there's no wine. But why do I say and why can I say and why will I continue to say until the end at a certain point even when it seems the water pots are full of death water and the relationship is just where it is The Lord changes death into life. This is a reality. And remember what the the master of the feast, the one in charge of everything, who has to taste the things to approve them, he tasted this wine. He said, what is this? The custom is to serve the good wine and the guests get drunk, they lose their sense of taste, then you give them, you know, the inferior stuff. But you have saved the good wine until now. That's my testimony. In one sense, listen to the end, the worst 
and the best are ahead. Hmm. And the worst is temporary. The best is permanent. Once there's this kind of change in the being of the husband and the wife, in their life with the Lord, that now the element of death has been swallowed up and changed into resurrection life. We just have this constant amazement. It's never been better. It's never been sweeter. Lord, you saved the good wine, the best wine, until now. Well, one of the co-workers and his wife were in that meeting. So the brother, being brave, I guess, on the way home, asked his wife, Dear, what stage are we in? And she answered just like that, because I don't know how you know stuff, but you just know stuff. So I've stopped hiding from the stuff my wife knows. You just know it's okay, as long as there's love to cover what you know. She said, we're in between the second and the third. In other words, dear, we've been in the second stage for a while. And there are signs that we're entering into the third. Okay, that's enough on the what? The deep intrinsic, mysterious, mystical dimension. I just have these. I don't know if other questions have come. I don't see anything. Saints, if you need paper, okay. uh, we did pass out some paper. If okay. You okay. Here's, here, here's one. We have been married for, um, for, well, for more than a few years now. And we have a hard time seeing eye to eye on the amount we should give. That is the offering. It seems my spouse does not share my measure of faith in this regard. And sometimes we go without giving, which makes me very uncomfortable. Okay, there are a couple things here. According to the way the question is worded, it's generic. So spouse could be the husband, spouse could be the wife. But initially, let me suppose, and I have a reason for this, that the spouse who doesn't agree with the amount is the wife in this case. It can be either. So what should the husband do? Well, I would say this, and this is my practice. See, this is fellowship again. It's not a teaching. Every year, I am in the Lord, and my wife knows this, to revise our giving upward every year by percentage. So I have a sense about this. And it's... um, not done impulsively, it's not done drastically, but every time I share this with my wife to see 
if she has the faith to match this. And my feeling always is, if she does not, I will accommodate her. I will accommodate her. I will not force her beyond her faith. But thankfully, my wife knows we have been through very thorough and drastic training under the Lord's hand regarding finance. And she always agrees. The reason I chose to use the sister as the example is related to a perfecting my wife and I received over two or three minutes in a conversation with Brother Lee. He was staying with us in 1971, so everything is young and new. And after the meeting, we're having a snack, and my wife is poised to ask Brother Lee a question, and I am petrified what is about to emerge. What embarrassing utterance will come forth now with, the, with, with Brother Lee? So she said, Brother Lee, why is it that sisters, they, they cause so many problems in the church? And so that the enemy doesn't play with your mind, the vast majority of common problems in the church are caused by sisters. All the huge, major, chaotic upheavals are caused by brothers. Okay? So, that's fair. Then he answered, insecurity and vain glory. So, if the sister, being a female human being, it's just the insecurity is taking over. She doesn't know yet the law of giving, which I have to mention briefly. She doesn't see the operation of the law of giving. So she can't do this. And when a sister is insecure, I mean, they can go bonkers. I mean, when they're really in the throes of this, I observed this growing up with my dear mother. Both my parents grew up in dire poverty. My father was one of 13 children. His father was killed in a mining accident when he was four. His education stopped at the eighth grade. Then he went to a trade school and worked in a, as a skilled tradesman as long as he could. My wife was one of 12 children. They, Grew up during the Depression. She was a brilliant student, offered a scholarship, fully paid to the University of Michigan. Had to turn it down and go to Detroit and do menial work in the hospital to support the family. And the Depression scarred that generation even more than the war. Mm -hmm. And so she would be so insecure if my father's overtime were cut back, she would worry. And I don't despise that. Rather, I understand that. So I will not push my wife in this matter beyond her capacity to believe. And I will not consider myself a martyr or a hero. I do not need a medal for accommodating myself to her. We are in this together. And 
for the sake of love, for the sake of peace, I will agree to what she's comfortable with. And that's what we'll give. But there's no problem now with my wife because we both live according to the law of giving. Okay, I have to be very careful. I feel I can say this. 30 years ago, Brother Lee presented in ministry that we should at least equal the Old Testament principle of 10%, mm. then give 5% so that one out of 20 earning units could be full-time. Mm. So my wife and I, we began at a certain point. We can tell you 15% is ancient history. It's ancient history. I can only say this much. Why? Because giving is a law, not a decree, a principle. In Luke 6, given it shall be given unto you. He who sows bountifully will reap bountifully. This principle has been abused by the prosperity gospel. Send money to me and God will give you so many fold. But it's a law. So we do not worry about money. We do not pray about money except to consider like there's going to be a major project to, you could say, expand and rebuild the training center on the campus to accommodate 500 in the kitchen, all kinds of things. We have to do this so that the present co-workers can hand down to the younger generation of co-workers a facility that will serve for decades to come. Eventually, we'll build dorms there. The whole thing will be in the campus area. What a tremendous provision. So that will entail some additional giving so we may seek the Lord about that but what happens is this and I know it will happen just like the law of gravity if we are faithful to give then the Lord will give in response that's a law that is not our motive for giving but this is the law but if we withhold, we place ourselves in jeopardy. One may think because of insecurity, well, if I withhold, then I'll have more. Eventually you will find you will have less. Things will happen. Things will just happen that will touch that money. In the... But if you know this law and in fellowship with the Lord... You give according to an agreement you make with him. Then whatever comes, I can tell you sincerely before the Lord's face, whenever an unexpected gift or supply comes, my first thought is to give. I'm not going to calculate, oh, no, I have this amount. No, I don't have this amount. 
because X percentage is not mine. Actually, nothing is mine, but part of it is temporarily at my disposal. But this part, then this keeps the law going. One great reason for lack of supply throughout the whole recovery is the lack of understanding of this principle of giving. So if you're in a situation where your spouse, now it could be the husband, it could be the sister that has the heart to give more, the husband, he's practical, he's thrifty, whatever this is, he squelches that. Then you need to, don't, don't condemn your spouse. In love, you need to accommodate yourself. Having your way is not worth weakening your marriage, hurting the other person. But it will free you. Two things have freed me and my wife financially. But we're still limited. We, we rent a house. Uh, we, we don't own a house. It's not feasible to buy a house for us where we live. So we stay within the limitation. The two factors are one I already mentioned, the law of giving. The other is no debt. Doesn't mean it was always that way. Once upon a time, there were no credit cards. <laughs> or there was just... I didn't get my first credit card until 1978. And then I found out the hard way I have to grow up into Christ in using credit cards because now there's quite a bit of debt and it seems that every month is kind of like a rehearsal for judgment day. You forgot about all of these things. You look at the bill, you're convinced these are fraudulent charges and then you find out, no, it's all there. And so something happened that we just got out of debt many, many years ago. And when that happened, I realized that debt presses on you Mm -hmm. 24 hours a day. Mm -hmm. You may not be aware of it. It presses your soul. Mm -hmm. And when you don't have debt, you're so free. So get out of debt and give if your spouse doesn't match the measure of faith, then please, by the Spirit's application of the cross, accommodate yourself. Be limited by your spouse. For the long run, this will do much more than trying to push through what you want to do. Okay, uh, what is the appropriate amount of time for newlywed brothers to spend fellowshipping with other young brothers. Not so much a corporate brothers meeting, but time spent with each other one-on-one. I've never considered this until now. (laughs) My real feeling is, not much, man. Not much at all. You are not a single person. You got to give up the good old days of the brothers' time. 
I mean, would you feel comfortable if your wife wants this ordinate amount of time to be with single sisters, sisters night out, uh, especially newly wed, young, newly wed brothers? There's a situation, and I don't know, I hope I can send his brother an email. I have the ground to send him an email. I want to send it in love because of a certain courtship. And Okay, he cannot do better than this sister. It's impossible. He cannot. He needs to realize this. And it seems she's poised to respond to a proposal. And I just wanted to tell him, I think I can't be too direct, I would, but I'd like to say, take action immediately. <laughs> but you don't direct one another like that. I would say, brother, if you're clear, please just take the necessary step. But he may still be wrestling with, I'm going to lose my freedom. Yes, you are. And that's not all you're going to lose. (laughs) You're going to lose your life, man. You're going to lose your soul life. And you, you have to realize, especially in the beginning, this is the most important person in your life. Right. Now, you shouldn't go to the extreme of getting lost in one another, that your marriage becomes a world... But even the Old Testament had this principle, okay, it's time for war. Here comes a young recruit. Recruiting officer says, are you married? Yep, I've only been married two weeks. See you in a year. See you in a year. You take time to establish the marriage. Why does the training require couples to be married at least a year before you come to the full-time training. Because you need to establish the marriage Mm. physically, psychologically, humanly, spiritually, in every way. You need to learn together to be married. That's why appropriate time, you know, I wouldn't say zero, but minimal amount of time. Mm. And you should check according to the spouse's feeling. Are you comfortable with this? I just like to be with brother so and so for an hour. We're going to have coffee to fellowship some things. Okay. But if it becomes a practice, depending on your wife's disposition and personality, she may react right away or she may keep it within and keep it within and hold it down and keep it suppressed and then it's Krakatoa <laughs> and you wonder where did this come from well <laughs> what do you mean where did it came from don't you understand human vessels don't you understand the marriage relationship you've been contributing to this so be, be limited in love. Be limited. If she feels it's too much, it's too much. 
I think, come on, give the sisters credit. They're going to be fair. They're going to be reasonable. They are cherished, loved, nourished, and supplied. And they'll say, it's okay. The, the young brothers need shepherding. It's okay. You're not going out with the boys, you know, to a sports bar to watch the New England Patriots, especially watch the, what? the Broncos not play in the Super Bowl, right? <laughs> That's what my son told me long distance, you know. He said they didn't show up. No, you're not going to do that. <laughs> All right. But then this leads to the second matter. Also, can you please share a word on the importance of couples spending time together, especially within that first year of marriage? Um... Brother Lee told his co-workers, us, emphatically, strongly, you must reserve one evening a week for the family. You must. And he didn't go into why. He just made his feeling known. And by that time, I had come to concur with this. So in the beginning, as we already mentioned, you need to spend time together to know each other, to get adjusted to being married. Was this only a strange thing that happened to me psychologically? But it took at least some weeks. I'd wake up in the morning and then it would hit me. I'm married. <laughs> I'm married. Yeah. I mean, this, this is an incredible realization. And uh, how much time, uh, I can't say. But you need to be together in a cherishing human way. And even throughout the course of your married life. This is recommended. Now my wife and I are in a very different situation now and even her physical capacity and her preference to just be home and to stand with me in what I do. But for quite a period of time we practice preventative maintenance. And this is what we meant by it. We could realize uh, there's a need for us to have uninterrupted time together, okay, without the kids. And happily, there was another church family. We had three, they had four. They had the same understanding. So we would go out to Desert Hot Springs twice a year for two or three nights. And we would keep their kids when they would go somewhere two or three nights. I, I just hope you're not shocked. We would just do these amazingly human things like sit in a hot tub and <laughs> go out to have a nice dinner in Palm Springs and just be <gasps> together for two or three nights. Because the marriage relationship is primary we were together before the children came. 
we are together long after the children left. We've been empty nesters for 20 years. Mm-hmm. And by the way, when that happened, when all the kids are gone, and then the three dogs have died, I wonder what is life going to be like with just the two of us here? And that's when I discovered God saves the good wine until now. It's so sweet. It's so peaceful. It's so delightful. And then when the children come, you need to do things as a family. Sorry to say, for some years I was under a religious concept that got into me in the early days that vacations are worldly. So we're not worldly. That means we don't take vacations. And so I didn't want to be worldly. And I wanted to be known as a brother who's not worldly. So even though I sensed the need to go somewhere on a trip with the kids... I thought, this is worldly. Until the brother shepherded me. He said, you need to take your family away. You need to take them away. Go away with your family. And so that word mattered to me. So we went down to San Diego. And that's where we developed the chant. They still remember this. This was in 1975, eight to five to see world drive to see the whales that will dive (laughs) and then I noticed when my daughter went back to school when she's asked to write about what you did in the summer what that three days meant to her so this became a practice and so you check with them however they feel and the youngest one He has his own feelings about the church. He has his own feelings. But you check with them. They can all tell you they never felt deprived of the care and attention of their parents and of their father. No matter what their father was engaged in. And we still know the best campsite in Yosemite. Okay, It's not hard to find. You just file this away, you know, put it in your smartphone, enter through Merced, follow the signs through the high country. When you get up there, look for the signs for Yosemite Creek. Turn off the road, follow the road through the forest. The one in the passenger seat, don't look down. Don't look down. You just follow the Lord then you get into the campsite, go all the way through. When you can't go any farther, you will be right by the river. Then you camp there. How do I know? I spent a week there. Okay? We do need to make the proper investment. Now the memories are in the children for their whole life. Then my son gets married, and then he duplicates this pattern. Mm. So just a little sidebar. I know this is family life more than just married life. How to handle the Christmas thing. Okay. 
And you, I don't know how you'll feel about this, and you may or may not agree, and that's not the point. Well, they were clear. We don't practice Christmas. But we have these semi-annual trainings every year. So in both the summer training and also in the winter training, we gave them training presents. We weren't bribing them for anything. Very meaningful things for them. Like, I gave my younger son a very good set of weights of high quality that the police department used. And so there are ways that we can be uncompromising with our commitment at the same time be divinely human and Jesusly human with our family. And this is what the brothers need to be. So you need to spend time together. Uh, You can weaken things by too much time. That, that I've stayed home and it wasn't a pleasant evening. It just, I don't know, I thought it would be so sweet and it turned out to be acrimonious. And I wondered why, because I missed the Lord in that matter. I didn't need to. All right. Um, a friend of mine has a spouse who has an illness having never passed through such a situation myself. Is there any way I can shepherd them or help them? I can't think of anything to say, and I don't know how to help. But my heart is to help in any way I can. Hmm. So we don't know if it's a sister or a brother. Don't say anything. What can we say? To just utter some spiritual thing, all things work together for good, or God is sovereign. And This doesn't supply anything. On the spiritual side, you just go there, you're in the Lord. Then how can you help? Do the laundry. Mop the floor. Mm. Vacuum the house. Mm. Help in a practical way especially if the sister is limited. Many husbands don't know what to do when the sister is limited, so they don't let the sisters get sick. They're not allowed to get sick. Everyone in the family can get sick except the wife. Even if she's sick, she has to cook or whatever. This is part of the dumb things that cost people (laughs) 10 years. Why do you think we have Subway and Quiznos and McDonald's and, and, and things like that? That's so in case of an emergency, you can love your wives in a practical way. That simply having a heart of concern will mean a lot. It, it communicates a lot. You have a concern, a genuine concern that will communicate a lot. I remember reading a story, probably was in Reader's Digest, so now I'm digging deep into the memory bank. And there was a loss, there was a death in the family that had many children. And a friend of the family came to the door and he was greeted and he said, 
I'm here to polish all the children's shoes. Mm. I'm here to do this. And so it's going to be acts like this that are cherishing. The need is practical. The need is physical. Especially if the sister is the one with the illness. Mm. Uh, if, if the husband has the need and that's affecting income, then it's another kind of situation. Mm. Now, we don't have, do we have anything? Okay. Okay, this next one here, I'm not going to read the way it's written. And uh, even the writer indicated that something like this may be necessary. The question in brief is, what happens when the attraction wanes? Mm -hmm. When the attraction wanes? And... uh, when it comes to courtship and the consideration of marriage, attraction is a necessary element. You're not selecting a co-worker. You're selecting a spouse. And my working definition of marriage remains the same as it has been for about 15 years. Okay, uh, You can use it if you want. If it doesn't ring true with you, just press the delete button. Okay. Marriage is a life of intimate mutuality in love under the headship of Christ. Um, I believe eventually some aspects of the physical attraction will wane. I know it's hard for you to believe because you're young, you're invincible, and you're immortal. But we get old. (laughs) And we get old, things change physically. But there's another kind of, I don't know if we can call it an attraction. There's another level of intimacy and longing for union and cherishing love that replaces it. You cannot maintain the initial attraction indefinitely. That's to try to perpetuate the first stage of marriage. You can't. And I just can't go in the direction of the worldly methods to try to perpetuate youth and to do all of these things. Why not accept the actuality of life and the stages of life and learn to be one with the Lord in a new stage and say, okay, my wife to me remains lovely. See, simply lovely. She doesn't have to be lovely to anybody else. And I don't think my sense of her loveliness is an illusion. And the feeling for her after 47 and a half years is much deeper and much more precious than ever before. My daughter once asked me about my loving mom. I said, Becky, more than ever. But it's not the same. 
And the questioner recognizes the danger of the attraction being gone and then being susceptible to be attracted to somebody else. Okay, this is realistic. This can happen. And part of the answer, I know this is not the major part, but there's a big no implied when you say yes to each other and get married. And eventually this no is almost more important than the yes. You are saying no to everyone you will ever meet in your whole life of the other sex. It's not yes for now. It's not yes uh, in the context of the, the people that I know. It's a yes that limits me my whole life and it implies a no that whomever I meet at work, in the church, in any kind of situation, these things happen. Okay, they happen. Being a believer and being in the church in and of itself doesn't secure us. We need to be kept. We need to pray to be preserved. We need to ask to be kept from the evil one. You know of a situation, this goes back a long, long time. Uh, A sister had been married. Her husband was just flagrant in his unfaithfulness. Eventually there was a divorce. He really repented. She had the grace to forgive. They were remarried in the church together. Then she had the thought that before the Lord, this new brother that had come in to the church, he he is her husband. He should be her husband. And some supposedly spiritual sisters agreed. So she felt this lifted her above and beyond and outside the commitment. And actually she followed that so-called spiritual leading when so many others, and she was part of that, left the umbrella in the Lord's recovery and married that person and that didn't last. If we don't know these things can happen, we don't know ourselves. We don't know the flesh. And I respect the questioner for acknowledging that this could happen. And we should not be naive to think that by sheer will we can protect ourselves. There may not be that many among us because this involves entering into the fourth stage. And the third stage 
we begin with dealing with the flesh. We have an initial understanding of the flesh. Then as Brother Lee points out in the crystallization study of Song of Songs, we're now in the fourth stage. We have become the sanctuary of God. We are the holy of holies. But the veil still remains. And the veil signifies the flesh. And Brother Lee says, now there is a deeper cross in dealing with the flesh. And I understand this to a limited degree. So I can say, we cannot fathom the potentiality of the flesh in all of us. Given the situation, given the temptation, given a stage of unhappiness in our marriage, whatever it is, plus satanic deception, the strategies of the enemy to destroy us, to ruin us, to damage our future. We live in a battlefield. And so there's a lot of consideration behind this. But positively, please pray and open to the Lord to take you on to another stage of your love for your spouse, of the physical enjoyment of life together. And now that you realize your weakness, then you pray for protection. When I travel, I don't know who I will see. My wife has the full confidence in 19 years of traveling. This will not allow any situation to give any possibility for what the flesh is capable of. There's just no way in where I'm staying or when I'm traveling. But that's because we are aware we're not obsessed with this. We still have the flesh until we're transfigured. And the flesh is the greatest enemy to God. In a sense, even more serious than Satan himself. Because the flesh is Satan incarnated, right at hand, in our body of sin, in our body of death. But the brother or the sister does not have to live in fear. But especially when you're entering into any new situation with people you're meeting for the first time. We need to practice this principle in Leviticus about the clean and unclean animals and about having the sense of how we can relate to people, people we work with or whatever it is, how close we can be, how friendly. It's really risky to be overly friendly, especially with the other sex. But I believe... The sincerity of this question is such that you bring the matter to the Lord in simplicity and you pray, Lord, preserve me for my whole life. Preserve me. Keep me from the evil one. Guard me. Surely he will.
Okay. Very good question here. Is it a normal practice in following the Lord to mainly base decisions on what is presented in the environment and follow peace? Okay, no. I'll come back to that. It's not as simple as that. In your experience, is there something deeper? Yes, we'll come back to that. We should be advancing toward advancing towards what we should be advancing okay is there something deeper we should be advancing toward in our spiritual experience yes this mainly applies to jobs where to live children local church to meet with okay <clears throat> in knowing what God's will is for us we first have to settle something permanently. That God's will is first not about us. It's about God. And it's the source of God's good pleasure, His purpose, His counsel, and His economy. And the perfect will of God is not first about what kind of salad dressing you should put on your salad. No, Lord, lead me. Um, so we need to settle it in our being that we are living here for the will of God. That will in Revelation 4.11, for some of you in the training, when I asked the trainees the question, what's the one verse in the Bible that explains why everything exists? Revelation 4.11, all things were created because of God's will. So then it's settled. Then in making decisions and following the Lord, there are three factors that interact. And we need all three. And any one of the three may be first. Or any one of the three may be last. But all three eventually need to come together. They need to coalesce. So the first I will mention is your sense before the Lord, your intuitive sense, and your fellowship with the Lord. But the leading you have from the Lord when you pray. What is the abiding feeling? How is the Lord shepherding you? Nothing can replace that. No person can usurp the place of Christ's headship as the Lord's Spirit to direct you. The second is genuine fellowship. And I want to emphasize genuine because there is a huge difference between genuine fellowship and the opinion of many. Brother Nee has a section I don't think it's a whole message. And the subtitle is The Opinion of the Majority Not Being the Feeling of the Body. So although X number of saints may have an opinion, that does not mean that is the fellowship of the body. 
genuine fellowship is fellowship in which whether it's with one or with a few or with many you touch the genuine feeling in the body toward this like with marriage the opinion of many can be ruinous the demand that I know it in at least one place that really they use the term body it's a body matter they're usurping that term they mean we decide we determine no you do not determine no one determines no co-worker no elder can direct you but the body has feelings and when you touch that and I am thinking of a particular situation I'll tell you the feeling of the body is gloriously positive I can't tell you how gloriously positive it is that doesn't mean now this, is, this obligates you it's just you want to know what the feeling is in genuine fellowship it's praise the Lord <laughs> let's sing hallelujah amen so as far as this aspect is concerned decision is up to you but we're fine then there is the environment and sometimes <clears throat> spiritual with either quotes or no quotes they don't pay attention to environment and that's a mistake uh, God used environment when he called Moses he didn't just say one morning Moses this is Jehovah I want you to go to Egypt he used something Moses was familiar with a bush and Moses spent a lot of time I mean 80 terms in FTTW so he spent a lot of time in the wilderness he saw cases of spontaneous combustion many times that's not what caught his attention it's why is the bush not consumed in the life study of Matthew Beverly makes this point in a striking way it's early in the gospel when the Lord Jesus learns that John the Baptist has been cast into prison Jesus immediately withdrew from Judea into Galilee because that environment was God speaking if you stay in Judea the likelihood of your being imprisoned and killed is very high. The environment is indicating to you that you need to move. So let's say, and I'm, I'm not opening to this possibility, that a fire would break out in this building. I don't think you need to pray I don't think you need to consult one another. Well, how do you feel? Should we, should we leave the, the building or not? What's your feeling? Lord, give me a sign. I'm not going to give you a sign. You already have the speaking in the environment. Now, <clears throat> sometimes the environment, the Lord uses it to limit us 
So he intends that we yield to what the environment is indicating or not allowing. Other times, because the leading of the Spirit is so strong and the sense of the genuine fellowship is so prevailing, we may have the sense the environment must change. The environment must yield. There's a mountain in the way. So we're going to speak to the mountain. Get out of my way. This is the enemy's obstruction. And uh, I just have to take you through the complexity of this. A passage in What Shall This Man Do? Uh, has helped me very much. It's the passage where those who collect the temple tax go up to Simon Peter and says, does your teacher pay the temple tax? He said, you betcha, he does. And he's not even from Minnesota. He says that. (laughs) So then Peter walks in the house. The Lord says, Simon, let me ask you something. The kings of the earth... From whom do they collect tax? From the sons? Or just from the citizens? No, not from the sons. Then the sons are free. Peter, are you getting my drift? The sons are free. Wait, didn't you hear that voice? My son? So... I don't have to pay the tax. I'm the son of God. So I don't need to pay the tax. But let's not offend them. Let's not offend them. So let's pay the tax. And we need a coin. So will you go get one? Will you go fishing? Get one. And the first fish that comes up We'll have the coin. You put it in for the two of us. Based on this, Brother Lee talks about, and someone even here tonight may be in this nexus, God's will A. That is, God leads you to do something, and eventually you realize this is the Lord's leading. The Lord is surely leading me to go to Israel. When you struggle with the Lord, He defeats you, you give in, you have the peace. Then you fellowship, have genuine fellowship. And because it's genuine, the brothers can share how they feel without telling you what to do. And they just say, we feel... Probably, eventually, you will go to Israel. But we feel you need to take care of such and such first. So now you have something coming in contradicting A, and that's B. Mm. A says go to Israel, that's God's will. B says don't go to Israel, that's also God's will. So, Or it can be not the genuine fellowship, but the environment 
1973, that's when Brother Lee released that explosive word in Los Angeles about going east to Jerusalem and how he wants to go into the Garden of Gethsemane and pray for the Lord's coming. And we were poised to go. But there was a boycott of oil that made the whole thing impossible in 1973. That's B. So it can be the environment or it can be the fellowship. Now, one of the ways in which the self is the strongest is when it's assured that it's doing God's will. God showed me this. God spoke to me. I must obey God. This is God's will. Whoa. Yes, it's God's will, but the way you're about to do it is contrary to that. Brother Nee refers to a particular experience where he was burdened to go somewhere to preach the gospel and the arrangements were made and he was forbidden to go through a family situation. And even Sister Barbara, he couldn't explain to Sister Barbara and she said, well, we're not going to be able to trust you in the future. And then he points out the way to do A is B. And regarding my marriage to Susan... God's will A was revealed to me. It was love at second sight. First sight was February, uh, was Friday, March 1st, 1963. Didn't work. Next night, Saturday, the 2nd, love at second sight. And so we knew we would be married. And I thought, okay, you finish. Columbia, I'll finish seminary, we'll get married in a year. We got married, not in 1964, but in 1966, July 30th, because God had a B before he could do A. So what happens is... God's will A is in your being. You can't say it's not there. But God's will B is staring you in the face, either through the body or through the environment. And that internal pressure deeply opens your being to the Lord. Mm. And the way to A is through B. So... I realize I brought you into some complexity. Now let me try to get us all out of this. No, it can't be just the environment and the peace. Uh, then, then where's the spirit? Then where's the headship of Christ? Where's the genuine fellowship of the body? You're, you're about to... Buy a house. But why are you buying a house 20 miles away from anybody? Wouldn't you be interested in how the brothers feel not to control you? Don't you want your house to be open for the church life? 
So you need to consider the fellowship <coughs> and the environment. So these three will always work together. It may be that the Lord as the Spirit will lead you. And so you have some assurance that this is the Lord's leading. But you're conscious of the body, so you fellowship. And the feeling is very good. And then the environment is open. So you've got all three indicators. Sometimes the fellowship may come first. Okay, I've only done this once in my life. And it's related to marriage. I don't know if I'll ever do it again. But I just had the sense that this brother who's now in Michigan and this sister who's in Anaheim belong together. And she shared something. She only met this brother on one occasion and she shared something about some feeling she had. And he was in a serious courtship with another sister. And I, I don't want to give the impression that I am clairvoyant. But I just knew because of the sister's situation it couldn't work out with him. They couldn't work out with him. But I didn't say anything. So it ended, and I still didn't say anything, but I had some feeling I would like to just contact this brother and ask him to consider this sister. But I had that feeling starting in October. I checked with his sister's father how he felt about it. He's a co-worker. He felt very good about it. I did not have the peace to do it until I saw him in March. And it was so simple. I just said, Brother, I just have a feeling to share something with you. You know, Sister so-and-so, would you be willing to go to the Lord and open to Him and pray concerning her? That's all. I didn't try to promote anything. But I knew this brother would realize he's not being told what to do. And I knew he would respect the fellowship. So maybe a couple weeks later, he sent me an email saying that he does have a good feeling about establishing contact with her. So I contacted her. I said, are you open for this brother to contact you? Well, I knew she probably would go home and dance around the house, but, <laughs> but she was low-key. And I said, then is it okay for me to give him your email? And so... They began the contact, and it was it was really flowing. Then he wanted fellowship on one other point, and we very rarely do this. I said, in this case, I think you should come to where the sister is because of the nature of her service. 
And because by being here, this will give you an opportunity to serve according to your burden. So he fellowship with the brothers. Where he was, they recognized this may be the Lord's leading. He came to California. They had a courtship. They had very good fellowship. And they'll be married in June. Well, let's just say there was no action of the body in this case. I don't think either one would ever come in contact with each other, maybe never again. So no one is interfering, no one is directing. But in this case, the Lord, through a member of the body, initiated something. Then the Lord is the head of the brother and of the sister, shepherded them. And now there is such a happy feeling. I saw them last week. And I said something like this. You know, the you know, Jeff Dusselgy, the world needs more Dusselgees. You know, and they told me about they asked them, are you know, are you preparing to get your dwelling place? And but other times the leading of the Lord may come first. And then you you seek out fellowship to help you pursue if this is the Lord's leading. But especially in personal matters, we all have to be assured there's no human control in the body of Christ. To have genuine fellowship is one thing. But to have brothers, sadly to say there are some who think that the final call is with us. If you don't get our imprimatur, our stamp of approval, you can't do it. Otherwise, you're rebellious. That is satanic. That has nothing to do with the body of Christ. Hmm. So whether it's with a job, or the church, or marriage, or the family, these three things interact. We don't know which will come first. In December 2012, I was committed to go to India. Prior to that, I was committed to be in San Francisco. Prior to that, to be in uh, Oklahoma City for the Thanksgiving conference. But before any of that happened, I was taken by an ER unit to the emergency room of St. Joseph's Hospital, then had to be there for a while. And so when the brothers came, they looked so cute, they had to put gowns on and masks and gloves so I wouldn't contaminate them. And then, you know, I think they were all agreed when I said, you know, I don't think it's a good idea for me to go to India. (laughs) Okay, that's a clear speaking in the environment. Right away, but it's not merely that. The feeling in the body is the same and my feeling is the same. So I can just let the whole thing go. Just let it go. There's no way to systematize these three things. They interact dynamically. So you can't say it's only the spirit. 
Because then you may be strongly independent. The Spirit spoke to me. Did He speak to you? No, He didn't speak to you, did He? He spoke to me. My angel materialized in my room last night. And I say, how do you know? Maybe it was a, a demonic impersonation. <laughs> then, then we got civil war going on over about the Lord's leading. Okay. Now, now are you willing to fellowship? Why should I fellowship? Well, because you're a member of the body and major decisions affect the body life. And you only fellowship if you love the church as you love the Lord and you want your life to contribute to the building up. Then you care for the environment. Well, because my answers were so long, we have these two remaining. Uh, let's see. We have seen couples in the church who love the Lord and pursue together when they are first married. And after a few years or decades, one loses interest in the Lord and only one shows up in meetings. It is a real struggle for that one, especially now in the home-based church life. How do we shepherd such a one? How can we prevent this happening in our marriage? Or is this just God's will? Well, when you're 25, you love each other, you love the Lord, you're consecrated, you have the Lord's leading to come together, the feeling is so sweet, the environment agrees, you get married. But when you're 47, when you're 53, when you're 69, a lot of things happen in human life. Mm -hmm. Let's just say on a brother's side, when he's 25, he has the vision, he also has expectation, anticipation, hopes. But now he's close to 50, and many of these things are not materializing. The marriage is okay. He consecrated his children to the Lord when they were born. But now that they're older, not all of them are interested in the God of their parents. Mm. And one enters into a stage of life where someone can just, just give up. You know, this is, I don't have the zeal I had 20 years ago. Whether you want to call this midlife crisis or whatever it is, I, I think is besides the point. But we do need to have an understanding. And probably only someone who has passed through that stage victoriously can help someone who is in that stage. If your existence is prior to that, there's no way you can relate to it. What can you do other than just express your heart of love and concern? There is no doubt that if one party remains, it's really difficult. Whether it's the sister who is held back or the brother who is held back. How do we shepherd such a one? 
There's never a method that's an answer to how. You read the book, How to Meet, big book, you come to the end, you have no idea how to meet. <laughs> but the book is called How to Meet. The, uh, <clears throat> but in shepherding, the main thing is to have a genuine concern. And whether it's toward the spouses in the church, you can just say, I sense this is not easy for you. And we're standing with you. We're praying for you. We're praying for your spouse. And hopefully, some would reach out in, with the Lord's shepherding heart to the one who has withdrawn. Because most of these saints will not be a problem to the church. They have withdrawn because of personal failure, personal disappointment, things that have happened to them. Some of them may not know it, depending how emotionally honest they are. They've got an issue with God. I wasn't shocked. I was listening to a middle-aged wife describing a situation she was going through. And I said, well, how do you feel toward the Lord? She said, I hate him. I hate him. I don't think she hates him now. But that's what she felt. So what would you say to someone who says, I hate God? You're going to say, the earth is going to open up and swallow you, go down live into Sheol. You think God's heart is that small? He would say, what did you say again? You say you hated me? I'm going to blast you. (laughs) Aren't you glad God is long-suffering? He's forbearing. He's kind. He's patient. And so both parties need this. In many cases, brothers pull out of it. Or sisters pull out of it. If they do, it's always through very significant shepherding. Some of us know a brother named George Lapahuska from the late 60s. Powerful person. Out of the church for a very long time. An impossible case for everyone except God and Witness Lee. And Brother Lee personally shepherded him over quite a long period of time. He was recovered to the Lord, recovered to the church life, and finished his course in victory. Amen. But we need more and more saints that have the capacity for this kind of suffering. Uh, Sorry. Well, it is suffering, but the shepherding that will bring someone forth. As a couple, we migrated to Boston. Some fellowship we received before coming was to forget everything we know so that we could be one in the new situation we are placed in. How? What does this mean? Okay. I have no idea. How can you forget everything you know? I mean, do you suddenly have amnesia? (laughs) What it means, it may mean... Be open 
to live Christ in a new situation. Don't evaluate the new situation by prior experience. Don't measure this local church by the standard of the church life you're familiar with. But, I mean, to forget everything we know, uh, by no means am I going to forget everything I know. Then what do I have to contribute to the church life? But if I understand the intention, okay. When I move from Anaheim to Irving, I was kidding with a brother in Irving. Unfortunately, he didn't enjoy my little joke. I said to him, I'm willing to live in Irving, but I refuse to live in Texas. And he was a native-born Texan, and I touched the love. Yeah. But I'd been in Anaheim for 10 years and fully engaged there. And in fellowship with Brother Lee, we moved, and I told the Lord, maybe this is what the point means. I said, now that I'm going to Irving, my prayer is I would be faithful in my work and live a simple and pure church life. So I let go of the service in Anaheim, especially with the children very involved with designing the curriculum and overseeing the serving ones and just let everything go. I didn't forget everything I knew. I still remember stuff about children's meeting. Some of it is not bad. But I'm not just going to spout it out as an opinion. I think that's what it means. How does a younger couple who has a heart to care for an older couple care for the older couple who may be returning to the church life after many years or just needs mutual care? This does not contradict what I said just now, that in order to shepherd one through that stage, you really have to have passed through that stage yourself. That's a principle. But a younger couple can cherish an older couple. They can. They can be very sweet. That you have Paul's word to Timothy. He said, do not rebuke an older man, but admonish him like a father. In other words, a younger person can address an older person. But there's the human respect. There's no presumption. But this can be very precious because the main thing is you have the heart to care. And because it's an older couple, and you know, I think what older couples are like and how older couples think, uh, this needs both a, has both a spiritual and a human dimension. On the spiritual side, you may help to update them to where the recovery is now. Not by giving them a cram course. And I feel the best way for someone 
who has been behind is not to try to go back 15 years. It's to get into what we're doing now. Mm-hmm. And there is a, whether or not you use this verse, there is a marvelous verse that applies here. And that's from Joel. Okay, I mentioned Joel. Is the verse coming to mind? Yeah. I will restore to you the years that the locusts have eaten. Okay, this is real. I don't know how God does it. But his way of managing time is very different from ours. When people return after a long time, and they're happy, and the church is happy, the enemy who is not happy will come to them and lie to them and say, it's good you come back. But it's too late. It's too late. You'll never make it now. You've been gone for 18 years. You can't make up these 18 years. That's a lie. How the Lord does it, I don't know. But even you might read that, even you might find that in Brother Nee's ministry, I think, on numbering our days. We just say, can we read this together and we pray read the verse together? Okay, you've never been gone for 18 years. You haven't even been here for 18 years. (laughs) You don't know why they left or whatever it is. But they're going to be cherished by this. Then there may be some practical things that they need help with. You don't have to overdo it, but you can do it. Because you have the heart to do it. And they'll sense your heart. And eventually you'll realize there's a way to help usher them back in. And there are many terms they don't know about. They may not be clear about what we're doing. We just, in a gentle way, usher them back in. And say the best thing, don't try to make up for all that lost time. This is what we're doing now. Okay? And we brought you the Holy Word for morning revival. Not just now, but for the previous year. This is what we've been covering. And here we brought you some of the outlines from the past training. Not to obligate you to study them. But as you have time, you just may want to look over these and see what we've been doing. And the just sense... Uh, there's no older brother uh, murmuring about why the celebration. Rather, we're so happy. But the enemy will harass them. He's really a creep. I'm glad there's a lake of fire for him. That's, that's the best place for him. And I've, I've talked to a number of brothers like this. They returned after 20 years, 30 years. And to assure them, it's not too late. It's not too late. The Lord will restore the years the locusts have eaten. Just let the Lord do what He can do. On our part, we're here to just help you enter in and understand the present church life, how we're going on now. Okay? Mm. It's 9.34, so I trespassed a little. And let's trespass just for two minutes more by just having some prayer together, not two by two, but at least a few of us offering some closing prayers to the Lord, okay? Amen. Okay. Amen.